Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today I'm joined by Dr. Richie Robertson. Richie is the professor of the German language and literature at the University of Oxford, and he's a fellow of the British Academy, and he also holds his DPhil from Oxford as well. And he's had a marvelous and impressive academic writing career. And just recently in 2021, he's published a new book with HarperCollins called The Enlightenment, The Pursuit of Happiness, 1680 to 1790. And that is what he is here to discuss with us today. Richie, it's a privilege to meet you. And thank you for joining me on the show today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, Let me say a bit about myself and about the book. Sure. hoped to achieve in it. As you said, I'm a professor of German German uh, literature, and <clears throat> there's a slightly unusual place for which to start writing about the Enlightenment. I have though written a lot about comparative literature, especially in the past um, 10 plus years, mainly French and English literature in relation to German. And if you profess German literature, you necessarily have to do a great deal of work in the history of philosophy. Besides that, um, I also want to see literature in a wider historical context and, wherever possible, a European context. Um, the book was commissioned. I had published something which attracted some attention on conspiracy theories in the 18th century. Some conspiracy theories involving Jesuits, some involving Freemasons. Anyway, as a result, the director of Penguin Books in the UK asked me to write a general book on the Enlightenment. I'd never have thought of doing so for my, for, um, by myself. However, I produced on request a synopsis of the book in 10 chapters. Afterwards, um, um, more came into being. That passed muster. Now, what was I trying to do in the book? Well, one of the things I wanted to do, this is fairly obvious, was to oppose the cliche that still exists, though not among scholars, of the Enlightenment as the age of reason. I wanted to make clear that it, it was at least as much the age of emotion, sympathy, feeling, sensibility, all words much use at the time. Reason was not the same as, as rationalism. That belongs to the 17th century, the age of Descartes and Spinoza. Think of the Enlightenment, professed rather rationality, good sense. And good sense not worked out by a solitary person in his study, but sharpened in conversation. The Enlightenment was above all an age of sociability an age of clubs and societies. And as I say, that um, wasn't a very innovative thing to do, but I also wanted to represent the Enlightenment not as even a conversation among um, dead white male philosophers, but as something that fed into the experience of ordinary people. And so the book begins with happiness, what happiness might consist in, what the obstacles were to achieving happiness, 
and how happiness was understood. I, I drew as much as I could on life writings, autobiographies, letters, and so forth. And that, I think, gives the book, um, I hope, a wider sense of what it was like to live in the Enlightenment. I also wanted to defend the Enlightenment against its enemies and detractors, um, for it's very widely held that the Enlightenment was an age in which um, rationalism and organization and bureaucracy um, regimented people and took away their freedom. The most famous text putting this case is the book Dialectic of Enlightenment, written by the philosophers Horkheimer and Adorno in their American exile. More recently, the Enlightenment is pilloried, not only because of the dead white males, but as being racist, uh, um, Eurocentric, um, misogynist, and what have you. Now, these charges can be entirely denied, and I haven't tried to whitewash the Enlightenment, but I have maintained that with Hume and Kant, both of whom wrote things um, which um, <laughs> they shouldn't have about other races, that these are um, small blots on the reputation, but don't um, disqualify them as great philosophers, and in Hume's case also as a historian, whom we should still read and read attentively. I found, however, that I also had to defend the Enlightenment against its friends. That is, against people with a simplified view of history who want to see the Enlightenment as a direct ancestor of modern, liber modern liberal politics. It was born in upon me as I read my way through the primary texts, but that just won't do. Democracy, as we understand it today, that is, the entitlement of all adults to vote, was just unthinkable in the 18th century. Even in the American Revolution, not only were women and, of course, slaves excluded from participation, but the voting qualification was restricted. And in order to control the popular vote, the founding fathers invented, as we all know, the Electoral College. So that in the extreme case of the popular vote produced a maverick, the Electoral College could declare that election null and void. But I realised the Electoral College was a matter of debate recently, and it may long since have served its purpose. Um, but to see the Enlightenment as the ancestor of modern liberal democracy just will not do. Um, democracy to the Enlighteners meant the popular democracy of ancient Athens, and they saw that such democracy regularly ended in demagogy, and the power of demagogues tended to lead to anarchy, and that in turn to the rule of a single strong man. So I set my face as much as I could against what historians call presentism, that is, judging, by the, judging the past by the values of the present. Now, of course, I live in the present, I live in the 21st century, and I can't avoid being a person of the present. But it's important to me not to allow the 
prejudices, which I inevitably have, to blind me to what was really going on in the 18th century, so far as I could reconstruct it. So, for example, it was apparent to me in, in, in 18th century politics that monarchy was the norm, republics were very rare, and on the whole, enlightened thinkers thought that political reforms would be handed down from above by enlightened monarchs. For that reason, Voltaire was very friendly with Frederick the Great of Prussia, although that relationship ended in tears, and um, um, Diderot travelled all the way to St. Petersburg at the invitation of Catherine the Great, who was in fact very good to him, but whether she took his advice or anything is, is not so clear. So for the Enlightenment, we have to revise our views, and there's one other respect in which we have to do so. It's very commonly held that enlightened thinkers were simply anti-religious. In fact, the truth is more complicated. Very few were atheists. Those who were found it best to keep the atheism quiet. And it was much more common to be a, a deist, that is, to believe that God exists and is good, but having created the world doesn't interfere in it anymore. Now that is in itself a very radical belief. If you think about it, it does away with the central claim of Christianity, the divinity of Christ, and it arouses a great deal of opposition. But it's still part of the Enlightenment tendency, not to throw Christianity overboard, but to displace the emphasis from theology to, to, to morality. This happened not only in Protestant countries, but to some extent also in Catholic countries. The Catholic Enlightenment is a phenomenon that's only come into focus in the last few years, but it was very important. And Catholic Enlighteners, who was influential was the Italian cleric and historian Muratori, wanted to reduce the number of, of feast days, pilgrimages, ritual events, and so forth, and instead encourage people to practice private morality and private devotion. Now, <clears throat> these um, understandings of the Enlightenment are gathering among scholars, but I wanted to disseminate them more widely and back them up, as I think I have done, by extensive reference to primary sources. So I hope that gives you an idea of what I was trying to do in the book. Yeah, definitely. That's really helpful. And I'm, I'm glad you spent the time to, to give that summary and explanation of your approach the way you did. Um, you know, I, th I think readers will notice and appreciate as they read uh, how you showed the Enlightenment as, as diverse, showing, showing it, it wasn't simply an age of reason, as you say, but, but uh, an age of emotion. Um, and and it, it wasn't homogenous by any means. I think you demonstrate this in part really well by paying close attention to specific texts. Yeah. Um, and, and so in writing the book um, for, for a general audience, um, can you tell us how you went about your research and how you determined what texts um, to be included and, and what, what maybe needed to be cropped out? I shall. I just wanted to mention about other purpose I had in mind, mm. and this is more personal. Um, I wanted to write for a general audience without talking down to people 
but also without indulging in academic jargon. Mm. I hate academic jargon, and I'm afraid um, <laughs> reading books in German about, about German matters, I come across a good deal of it. It's clear to me that whatever purpose people think they have in using an academic technical language, one purpose is to shut some readers out. I didn't want to do that, but to invite people in. And it was also, so it was important to me to write the book in a tone of voice that I could identify with. Now, how did I go, go about my business? Well, I'd already read quite a lot of the Enlightenment classics, but um, I did a lot of rereading. I read Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire right through for the third time in my life. That was a very rewarding experience. Um, there's a lot that I hadn't read. And when I embark on a project, I always begin with what's most difficult. So <clears throat> I don't understand economics, but I had to make some effort. So I sat down with the wealth of nations. And um, for a time, I felt that I, that I understood political economy, as the 18th century called it, well enough to write at least a basic exposition of it. But don't ask me now. Um, anyway, Smith is a very rewarding writer, and there are many things in the wealth of nations which his ideological admirers don't seem to be aware of. Um, in my discussions with my editor, the idea was that I should provide <coughs> thumbnail sketches of a number of Enlightenment classics. The Wealth of Nations, The Decline and Fall, Hume's Treatise of Human Nature, the Encyclopédie, and a number, a number of others. Um, when I began planning the book, um, I had a very careful word count, and I allowed myself 3,000 words for each of these expositions. Of course, like, like many ambitious plans, I didn't stick to it, and the book became longer than I had originally intended, especially as, as the original 10 chapters expanded to um, 14. Originally, for example, I had a single chapter on religion, but the subject was so important that I had to divide it into two. Um, the book um, is quite largely a critical exposition of texts. I don't just report what people wrote, but I, I argue with them. <clears throat> and <clears throat> one thing that I do is um, assign a lot of importance to li literature and the reception of li literature. If you want to understand what people felt in the past, fiction and drama and poetry are a great resource. So as some people have pointed out, <clears throat> the real center of the book is an account of the three great emotional bestsellers of the mid 18th century. Richardson's um, um, Clarissa, a wonderful novel. People shouldn't be put off by its length. I found it a real page turner. Um, Rousseau's Le Nouvelle Héloïse and Goethe's Sorrows of Werther. All these were massively popular. We have a lot of commentary on them. We have fan letters to the authors. We even have fan fiction, all extremely revealing. And <clears throat> all this documents the Enlightenment as, in large part, an age of sympathy and sensibility. The ability to enter sympathetically <coughs> into other people's states of mind, other people's feelings, 
was something cultivated during the Enlightenment and trained by the habit of, of novel reading. The historian Lynn Hunt has argued this case, and I'm very much indebted to her. Um, it was also important to, just to read a very great deal. Unfortunately, I was able to spend a year in Germany as a senior research fellow at a research institute, the Lichtenberg Kolleg in, in, in Göttingen. I owe the director a great debt of gratitude. Göttingen has a library, which is the best place in Germany to read about the 18th century. There's a massive amount of material in every European language, and I made good, I made good use of it. And as every academic finds, getting away from home and by and from the obligations that inevitably press on one is the only way to make progress on a major on a major project. So um, that is basically how, how I went about it. And I had a, a plan <coughs> worked out before I began, and the plan um, <coughs> pardon me, developed, I hope organically, as plans do and should. Well, I, I think you included a, a really good selection of, of primary source material here. Um, and in fact, the book itself, it, it, it's, it has a lot of material itself. It's nearly three, excuse me, 800 uh, pages, another, another few hundred of references. It's really well-researched and it covers mm -hmm. a range of topics. Um, one of the topics um, that I noticed here, at least in my own reading, was one that, that seems to get overlooked a bit um in in enlightenment literature uh and that's the topic of aesthetics mm. um richie can you talk to us uh some about this chapter why you've included this chapter on aesthetics and, and maybe why it it may get left off sometimes yes i, I can i thought about that a bit um <clears throat> the only the only general study i know that gives a lot of attention to aesthetics is a german one the book can the Philosophy of the Enlightenment by Ernst Cassirer, written in Germany just before he was obliged to flee abroad because of Hitler. Um, Cassirer was a philosopher, a very wide-ranging one. Um, writers on the Enlightenment have most often been historians. Um, Peter Day, Ro Robert Darnton, Jonathan Israel, um, Anthony Pagden in recent years. And... <coughs> um, They've um, had a, a very Anglo-Saxon notion of philosophy. In the German tradition, however, most of the major philosophers have included aesthetics as an important department of philosophy. Kant's third critique is about aesthetics. Hegel's lectures on aesthetics make an enormous book, much bigger, much bigger than mine. And <clears throat> Adorno wrote several fat volumes on aesthetic theory. Um, there isn't, in other words, a great tradition of aesthetic writing in which we mustn't forget Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. So the absence of aesthetics from many accounts of the Enlightenment is a bias by historians and a bias in the Anglo-Saxon world. I wanted to make this good, and <clears throat> it's a topic I was fairly at home with. I've lectured on aesthetics, aesthetics aesthetic theory to graduates for many years. So I had quite a lot of raw material. And it also enabled me to address 
one of the complaints often brought against the Enlightenment, namely, that the Enlightenment was incapable of tragedy, was Enlightenment thinkers were too much given to shallow optimism. Well, that charge can't entirely be rebutted. And <clears throat> I do quote some examples from well-known and obscure thinkers of, um, of optimism that now looks rather, now, now looks rather laughable. But most of the Enlightenment thinkers had a much more realistic out outlook on life and didn't think that progress was inevitable or easy. Uh, on the question of tragedy, it is notorious that the Enlightenment didn't produce any tragic drama except in Germany. In Germany, from the mid-18th century onwards, you do have a tradition of tragic theatre, including the masterpieces of Goethe and Schiller. Now, why that is so is a big question that I didn't try to address. But my argument finally was that the Enlightenment was capable of tragedy and produced some, but you have to look for it elsewhere. My candidate for great tragic work is a, a novel I've already mentioned, Richardson's, Richardson's um, Clarissa. When you finish that novel, you feel you've plumbed the heights of good and, above all, the depths of evil. The effect, the effect is quite shattering. And its popularity in the mid-18th century and among the most astute judges is not at all surprising. So yes, the Enlightenment was capable of tragedy, but people were looking for tragedy in the wrong place. Very good. Well, Richie, if we move back again and consider the book again as as a whole and and particularly the the subtitle uh the yep. pursuit of happiness um now you've argued that that the pursuit of happiness it actually gave the enlightenment its intellectual coherence um and i'm wondering if you can walk us through what exactly uh this meant in terms of of the personal experience during these years what what were the the preconditions for personal happiness. Okay. Well, I didn't explain to Americans where the phrase pursuit of happiness comes from, but in the Enlightenment text, you find the word happiness and French, German, and Italian um, synonyms um, all over the place. But it's very important to distinguish between private and public happiness. Whether you or I can be happy in our lives depends on a lot of things. It depends on, on luck. It depends on our temperaments. It depends, I suppose, on our genetic inheritance. It depends on whether we're lucky enough to enjoy good health. It depends on our relationships. And obviously, um, um, nobody's individual life can be free from unhappiness. That was perfectly clear to the Enlighteners. Um, the Enlighteners tended, when it came to um, private happiness, to fall back on classical philosophers. Some referred back to Epicurus, who told his fellow Greeks that they shouldn't worry about the gods. The gods either didn't exist or didn't care about humanity and should instead strive for happiness. And the best way to do that was through moderation and temperance in enjoyment. Others were attached to Stoicism. The Stoics taught that, that the wise man should make himself insensible, un, um, unfeeling, and feel as little as possible. 
that didn't that didn't mean being selfish and unconcerned about others, but did it did mean <coughs> cultivating cultivating kind of armor. In the 18th century, although stoicism lingered on in some writers such as Adam Smith, um, it was generally disparaged because people pointed out that human nature just isn't like that. You can't make yourself insensible. My favorite example is a place in Fielding's Tom Jones, where a character is introduced who's a Stoic philosopher, and always spouting Stoicism, until told, um, while speaking, he happened, he happened, unfortunately, to bite his tongue. Mm. <laughs> and um, made faces in agony for some time. So, um, private happiness then is difficult, and you're lucky if you have much of it. But public happiness is another matter. Mm. As I mentioned good health. Well, whether we can enjoy good health depends a lot on the medical services available to us. I'm afraid, by the way, that um, medical research, as opposed to medical theory, didn't make much progress in the Enlightenment. And I have a couple of dreadful examples of people who recorded their sufferings in being operated on without anaesthetic. Um, but public happiness means providing a framework which people can lead their lives and pursue happiness with at least um, as few as possible of the avoidable obstacles. Increasingly in the 18th century, enlightened monarchs, what were called at the, at the, um, at the time enlightened despots, that now historians prefer to talk about enlightened absolutism, um, thought of their duty to work on behalf of the well-being of their subjects. They ceased to regard the subject simply as an exploitable resource and to find themselves, in the words that Voltaire put in the mouth of Frederick the Great, as the first servants of the people. Frederick, Catherine Great of Russia, and Joseph II of Austria, and a number of smaller rulers and, and ministers of the 18th century were consciously devoted to the public good or to their conception of it. Now, that meant um, taking charge of what at the time was called, uh, was called police. Police in French and in English, polizei in German. That means public order, public infrastructure, roads, bridges, and canals, as well as the prevention of crime. Um, the, the German states especially, and don't forget that until the end of the 18th century, there were, th there were about 300 German principalities, large, small, and very small, um, each had a staff of civil servants who were increasingly often um, trained at university and in many cases, devoted to the conception of the public good. Not in all, you find some who embezzled money or who behaved with great incompetence, but on the whole, they, on the whole, they did their best. Similarly in France, with very much less power, the provincial administrators like, like, like uh, uh, Turgot struggled to improve the public good with the limited resources at their available, at their, at their disposal. Um, now, again, modern critics of the Enlightenment have often focused on these administrators and called them tyrannical busybodies. 
That's what Michel Foucault's case against the Enlightenment comes down to. And certainly, the many proclamations that these administrators issued um, suggest by the very number and the number of times that they were repeated, they were often not very effectual. Um, what Foucault calls with some exa exaggeration of the Great Confinement was an attempt to deal with beggars and with the destitute and putting them into and with the mad and putting them into institutions. And it must be said that um, in all Western countries, um, administrators wrestled with the problem of what to do with this um, threat of society with very little success. Institutions in, in um, Britain and America, workhouses, prisons, were very inadequate answers. Um, one very radical example was the Philadelphia Penitentiary, pioneered by the um, um, doctor Benjamin Rush, in which people were supposed to be cured of their vices by being subjected to solitary confinement. Dickens visited the Philadelphia Penitentiary on his tour of America in 1840 and was horrified to see people condemned to a living death. So these administrators didn't get everything right, and some things they definitely got wrong, but the motive behind the work was an attempt to create public happiness. And if beggars are cleared off the streets, um, then the rest of the population are happier for it. There may be hard luck for the beggars. Very good. Well, I appreciate that a really thorough answer, especially how private happiness is relating to public. Uh, well, 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 Richie, uh, suppose there are some readers who are interested in this book uh, who want to explore more secondary literature on the Enlightenment. Where would you direct them? What are, what are some good introductory uh, readings on the Enlightenment? There is one I can certainly recommend. The author is also called, called Robertson, John Robertson, no relation of mine, hmm. though we have already sometimes been confused. Um, he brought out in 2015 a, a little book on the Enlightenment in the series Very Short Introductions, published by Oxford University Press. You can read it in an afternoon, or perhaps two afternoons, and <clears throat> I know enough about the material to see that John has done a really expert job in bringing in practically every aspect of the Enlightenment. Um, and he wears his knowledge very lightly. His approach differs from mine in that um, he begins with a chapter on philosophy, which, with the best will in the world, is somewhat heavy going. There's not much to be done about that. Whereas um, I introduce the reader to the Enlightenment in a different, more gradual way, by writing about everyday, everyday life and the preconditions and difficulties of happiness. But John's book contains everything concisely and lightly. Um, and as I say, a first reading will only take you at most two afternoons. I'm a little hesitant to recommend other secondary books because recent um, books have very strong bias towards the history of political thought. Um, that's the case with, for example, the massive encyclopedic volumes by Jonathan Israel, um, 
You may think the lost material in my book, there was absolutely, it is absolutely dwarfed by Israel's gigantic tomes. Well, he learned a huge amount from them, but um, he does have a particular um, bias. Um, and he makes great claims for the radical wing of the Enlightenment, which I don't think myself could be sustained. Lighter, as an easier read, is Anthony Pagdon's book of 2013, The Enlightenment and Why It Matters. Um, Pagdon is a historian, and a historian particularly of political thought. Um, he has a very great, he has a great range of languages, but he's most at home in the history of Spain, which did have an, an enlightenment, but is inevitably um, rather marginal in any account of, of the enlightenment. So I do recommend Pagdon with, with these reservations. Or more recently, the Italian scholar Vincenzo Ferroni has brought out several books on the Enlightenment, the most recent being History of Human Rights, which is now available in English. Um, but I do think Israel, Pagden and Ferroni do fall into the trap of, of, of presentism, which I try to avoid. And I would recommend people, after a certain time, to stop reading about the Enlightenment and read the Enlightenment texts, which are available in English in handy editions, read Voltaire's short fiction, read his philosophical, philosophical dictionary, which is a very witty book, read Hume's essays, um, very short and pithy, read some of Kant's short essays, um, re read Gibbon's autobiography, and if you like that, go on and tackle the, the decline and fall. Um, so don't read about the Enlightenment beyond a certain point. Read the Enlightenment. It sounds like a fine recommendation. Well, Richie, it's been uh, a, a real pleasure to discuss your book. Uh, and you've been really gracious with your time now. But before we go, um, can you share with our listeners what writing projects you plan to work on next? Okay. I'm putting the finishing touches to a book on, on Nietzsche, hmm. the lockdown forced on us by the pandemic had its advantages for me in that I had to piece, piece to write this book. Um, and my take on Nietzsche is that Nietzsche in the middle period, roughly 1878 to 1882, presents himself as an heir and continuator of the Enlightenment. I think the middle period is underestimated and the later works which are more dramatic and in many respects more shocking, indeed one should be shocked by many things in them, um, <clears throat> have been a bit overrated. In the further future, um, I have a book on the stocks, which is about German political drama from the 17th century, probably down to the 1960s, in relation to, at various periods, Machiavellianism, reason of state and, 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 and realpolitik, so it will be about political drama intertwined with the history of political thought and the history of government. Some parts of that already exist as published articles, much more in a very unpresentable rough draft. And that will be a project for my imminent retirement. Thank you for asking. Very good. Wonderful. Well, for now, thank you, Dr. Richie Robertson, for writing this new book, The Enlightenment, The Pursuit of Happiness, 16 
1980 to 1790. It's published in 2021 with Harper, an imprint of HarperCollins. And Richie, thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. Thank you for asking me. And thank you all for listening. I'll see you next time on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you.